The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, EDU edition for this week. We are uh, departing from our series we've done recently on the EDU show regarding uh, Secure Act 2.0 interpretations and information. I'm not sure that's the official title of the series, but it sounded good. Um, Today, we're actually going to do a show that is uh, prompted by or inspired by a recent email that was sent in to Jim that is going to allow us to kind of re-describe portions of our process or approach or philosophy on retirement planning and how we um, look at certain key aspects to retirement planning for people. And um, that's going to be the main meat of the show. And then I believe Jim's got uh, maybe a little follow-up to a topic that we discussed last time, just to do a little house cleaning or housekeeping. Um, So Jim, you can join us when ready. Was that my cue? That's your cue. Good handoff. I like that. Thanks. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition, where we like to kind of go deeper into topics on the EDU. Uh, this being June, June is National Annuity Awareness Month. I'm sure all of you know that. I'm sure everybody got their cards and letters by now and gifts. Um, I have received none of that yet from Chris. No card, no gift. Still there's, waiting. There's a lot of the month left. The, well, it's true. There's much, many, many weeks of June left. It's only June 6th today. But if I remember last year, I still didn't get any card or gifts from you. And I have a feeling you're going to carry on and uh, not honor National Annuity Awareness Month. Well, isn't there something to be said for consistency? (laughs) (laughs) I love this National Annuity Awareness Month created by a consortium of annuity companies. Um, who who comes up with what month is what anyways? Anyone can. Anyone? Anyone can have their own month and define it. Yeah, just need to do it. And then you need some kind of a uh, press machine to get it out there to get other people to recognize it as you do. Gotcha. Anyways, what I like to do, because in our opinion, annuities might, M-I-G-H-T, might, all caps, in bold, play a role for some people in their retirement. 
To us, they're just a tool. I like to use the analogy of dogs. There are many different types of dogs. And, and for some people, when they hear the word annuity, Chris, they think, oh, it's a dog of a thing anyways. I don't mean in that sense they're dogs. What I want you all to understand, there are all different types of dogs. There's big dogs, small dogs, medium-sized dogs. There's hairy dogs. There's hairless or, or what do they call them, hypoallergenic dogs, which is what my sister has because she's allergic as heck to dogs except for a certain few breeds that she can actually have and she's fine. But if she goes around, I guess, a normal dog, um, she gets these allergies. There's all different types. I had a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, which was a phenomenal cold water duck retrieving dog. You would use a Chessie in January to go get a goose out of the Atlantic Ocean. You wouldn't use a Bichon to do that. But you also wouldn't use a Chessie or try to bring a Chessie on an airplane and keep nicely under the seat in front of you. It wouldn't work. You would use that little Bichon for that. There's all different types of dogs. They may all kind of look and do the same. They have some type of fur. They got four paws. They got a tail. They wag it. They got canine teeth. But they're all different types of dogs used for different purposes. And some dogs I like. Everyone knows I'm a dog guy. If you go to the website, you'll see pictures of me with my Chessies who have since passed away. I love dogs. I miss dogs. I want to get another dog, but I'm not ready for one yet. I get too much going on. But just because I love dogs doesn't mean I love all dogs. I've said that before. I do not trust those purple tongue chows. Just any dog, first of all, with a purple tongue, you shouldn't trust to begin with. But I can tell you, I guarantee, I can read dogs' minds. And chows, when they're looking at you, they're going, red rum, red rum, red rum. I just know they are. And if any chow owners are out there, don't convince me to get a chow. There's something about chows that freak me out. I just Maybe it's just personal towards you. No. I don't know. Chows and pits. Some pits are very friendly. I got friends who have pits and they're friendly. I, I just, something about those dogs scare me. I also don't like the little yappy dogs that don't shut up. So what I'm saying, folks, is even though I'm a dog lover, I don't love them all. Even though Chris and I talk about annuities, we try to teach you about annuities we teach our clients about annuities. We go to great lengths to let people know and to let anyone listening to this podcast know. We don't love them. We don't lead with them. Even though I am a licensed insurance agent in the state of Colorado, we don't use them often. In fact, most of the annuities we have been using for about the past eight months have been MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities, that even though they have a lifetime income stream, which is the essence of an annuity, MIGAs are being used specifically in, in positioning and for a stated period of time, three years, four years, five years, because they pay a fixed rate of interest and interest rates were pretty good before the long-term rates started coming down oh, since October of last year. You would be able to get a three-year or a four-year MIGA paying around 6%. You can't get them now. And we were using them to lock in a stated rate of return for a fixed period of time that would equal spending that was expected to be needed into excuse me, in three, four, or five years into the future. 
So annuities come in different flavors, different essence, but at their core, they will pay a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. So even though we'll use a multi-year guaranteed annuity or MIGA for a stated purpose for a limited period of time, most of the annuities we use beyond that would be specifically for lifetime income. However, there are many different types of annuities that do other things. And just like there's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever annuity that I really love, there's a chow and a lappy, yappy little dog type of annuities that we don't like. In other words, what I'm saying, there are a lot of annuities that are missold, that are complex, that have outrageously high embedded fees, and that are often pushed because of the commission they pay, which you don't see the dollars coming out because you'll hear a line like this, right, Chris? Mm -hmm. You don't pay me. <laughs> the insurance company does. The insurance company <laughs> pays me. Yeah. And those often commission six, seven, eight percent. So do the math. If you're putting three, four, five hundred thousand dollars into it, the person selling it to you could be walking away with thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar front end commission. That true, you theoretically didn't pay directly, but because that annuity is going to have most likely a very long penalty period, very limited investments and perhaps but very high embedded fees, you are paying for it. Those types of annuities, no, we don't like. So we try to go to great lengths to get you to understand that annuity is a noun, just like a dog is a noun. There's all different types of dogs. You may like some, you may hate others. We look at annuities the same way. We like some, we hate others. I'm going to be totally impartial on this. I have no skin in the game. When we do MIGAs lately, since they started coming out, we use fee-based, what are often called commission-free, but I don't like to use that verbiage because the wholesaler still gets a commission. The wholesaler is the company that facilitates the relationship between the insurance company and the advisor. The wholesaler is paid a commission by the insurance company. So we say these are fee-based annuities, not commission-free annuities, because the wholesale is being paid by the insurance company. And that's the definition of a commission. When the company pays uh, the provider and not the client directly, the industry calls that a commission. And it's only earned if a sale is done. So there is still a commission in a quote-unquote commission-free annuity. It just doesn't go to the advisor. It's a, and it's a very, very small one, I will concede. But a commission is still technically being paid even on a commission-free annuity. They call them fee-based, and I prefer to call them fee-based because as an advisor, I can offer them. Insurance agents and brokers cannot offer these annuities. Investment advisors can. And the reason they can is we, as an investment advisor, have the option to charge separately for opening and, and maintaining that annuity for someone. Our firm has chosen not to charge for that. We treat it as an asset if a client is an asset management client. But the industry itself, the RIA industry, registered investment advisor industry, is loving these annuities because they can put their AUM fee in it. And a lot of them have been putting their AUM fee into the annuity structure, which makes you say, well, what is better, paying a commission or paying an ongoing AUM fee. 
that's something that you'll have to talk about or analyze on a future show. I really went down a rabbit hole there, but I wanted to, because these are all topics I will get into deeper on future EDU shows for the rest of the month. We'll talk greatly about how annuities are bought and sold and the fees associated with them. That's going to be a whole EDU show. I just want people listening, and especially new people, not to think Chris and I are going to do a whole series of shows for the entire month on pushing annuities on you. It's the last thing we're going to do. We, Unless you're a client of ours, you're not even getting an annuity from us. We don't sell them to anybody. So just get that idea out of your head. We have no skin in the game here. I'm trying to do what I've been doing for the last 10 plus years on this podcast, and that's teach you guys. To not hate something outright and instead just understand how it works and to concede that maybe you are not perfect for an annuity, but there are other people who are. And that's what I want to accomplish in this whole month of June. And for the upcoming Q&A shows, we've already got a ton of questions in over the past week with people asking questions about annuities. If you have annuity questions, send me an email, put in the subject annuity questions so I'll know. I'll try to answer it on an upcoming show. And for everybody who sent in previous questions on annuities, we're going to be addressing those as well. We have way more questions, more likely, than I'm going to be able to answer in just one month's dedication, but I'll try to answer as many as I can. Okay, the little brief thing that I want to mention that Chris alluded to before I went on this tirade was yet again, Chris, people are getting confused on what I said about moving money from one IRA to another IRA or to a different style retirement account like a 401k after you are required to take RMDs. So we're still getting confusion. I just want to clarify one more time. I clarified this on last week's Q&A show. I want to clarify it on this week's EDU show because it came on an EDU from now three weeks ago that is generating all this confusion. So in case some people are only listening to EDU shows and not Q&A shows where we try to clarify this, I want to get into it one more time, and then I promise no more. When you reach the age of 73 now, used to be 70 and a half, then 72, now 73, and in nine more years, it'll be 75 unless they change the law again between now and nine years from now. When you reach 73, beginning January 1st of that year, you will be required to take an RMD, even if you delay your first one, which you're allowed to do until April 1st of the year following the year you turn 73. Beginning January 1st of the year you turn 73, the first dollars out of your IRA will be considered the required minimum distribution, even if you are delaying to the following April. And because of that, you are limited in your ability to move an IRA to other accounts. And it gets very confusing. And I did misspeak, and Chris failed to correct me. So he made a mistake, but it's okay. We're not going to hold him responsible for that. Three weeks ago, when I was describing a case in a financial planning form way back in 08 or 09, if it had to be 09, 
where a financial advisor wrote that she, because the market had lost so much in 08, in January of 09, converted a big portion of her client's IRA into a Roth. And this was several months after she did that. I won't say she was bragging, but she was talking about how much the Roth had rebounded. Because you all know, Mm -hmm. February of 2009 was the bottom. Nobody knew that. And she doesn't pretend that she knew it. She just converted in January, and this had to have been six, seven, eight months into the year. The market was up big. We had a big rebound in 09, and it just continued and surprised the hell out of everyone for the next 12 years or so. I, as well as many other people, pointed out to her because she mentioned her client was over the age of 70 and a half. Back then, it was 70 and a half with RMD age. He was well into his 70s. And she said they were going to take the RMD out Mm -hmm. in November or December. Right. And I pointed out to her and on the podcast a few weeks ago, you can't do that. In the year that you are required to, or after, not just the year you are required to start RMDs, but any point thereafter, the RMD comes out first. So a few people wrote in, and I wrote to her also and pointed out to her the RMD should have been taken first. And it's because she went from an IRA to a Roth IRA. And then, like, Incubus, is that his name? The, the guy with the wax wings and feathers? Icarus. Who? Icarus. Icarus? Is that Incubus? Mm-hmm. No. What's an Incubus? Uh, that is a... Um, Oh, is that the ghost that has sex with you? Uh, closer, yeah. Okay. There's a movie on that, isn't there? I'm sure multiple, yeah. Okay, okay. No, it's not an Incubus. No. It was Icarus or whatever the hell it is. The Greek guy who flew too close to the sun. Yeah. That was me three weeks ago. I should have shut up there, but for some reason I didn't. And I mentioned erroneously that the same thing applies if you take an IRA and transfer it, trustee-to-trustee transfer. You never touch the money to an IRA after RMD's age. It is not allowed. And then a few people pointed that out to me. I fixed it on the following show. Chris didn't pick up on it. He forgot to, and we misspoke. It only applies in certain cases. So please, if you listened to the EDU a few weeks ago, I'm trying to clarify. And here are three instances where the trustee-to-trustee transfer or an indirect transfer will not work. If you move from an IRA to a Roth IRA, you must take your RMD first. If you move from a 401k to an IRA, you must take your RMD first. But if you move IRA to IRA, direct transfer, no problem. You can take your RMD out later. If you do an indirect transfer, otherwise known as an indirect rollover, you take the money out of the IRA. You take 60 days to put it back into the IRA. You must withhold your RMD before putting the rest of the money in. And there's one other instance. After getting the latest email where someone was pointing out to me, they thought I misspoke. 
where I realized there's one more instance that I can think of, and there might be a few others, where you must take the RMD first, and that is the still working exception. Now, I'm going to pause there because I've been talking a hell of a lot, and I want to sip this iced coffee. So, Chris, walk people through where I'm going with that. I'm not sure where or you're did going I hit with you that. Out of the blue, I like, can imagine where you might be going with that. The still working <laughs> but, exception. Yeah. So if you're still working, you're allowed to um, uh, delay or you know not take your RMDs from a employer based plan that you're with. Um, normally, you have you know RMD age that hits, but some people are still participating or still part of their plan at work. If you're still working, those RMDs don't start yet. So at that point, if you were to take money out of your 401k and roll it to your IRA, there's no RMD due. So that would be a case again, where you would not have to do the RMD first, but that's only because there's not an RMD owed because of the still working rule. Is that where you were going? That's where I was going with it. Now I've had a chance to take a drink, so I'll I'll, I'll carry this baton to the end. Chris kept it going. He did good. Let's all give him a... No, I figured that's where you're going, but... Let's all give Chris a round of applause. Play the clap in there, Chris. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. He did good. The still working (laughs) exception applies only to the employer you are currently working for. If you are, remember, RMD age is now 73. If you are 73 and you're still working and you don't own 5% or more of the company on your required beginning date, April 1st of the year following the year you turn 73, if you don't own more than 5% of the company on that date, you will be eligible for the still working exception. And that says you don't have to take RMDs out of that 401k. So a strategy, if you want to delay RMDs, and we're not huge fans of delaying RMDs. So many of you do-it-yourselfers love the delaying RMDs. We don't know why because it's just creating a tax nightmare. But let's just say you are one of those you love delaying RMDs or it makes tax sense for you to delay your RMDs for one reason or another. Maybe you're trying to do conversions and having to take RMDs would just screw up getting more money into your Roth. Or I could see a case where their earnings are so large currently from the work they're doing. And that's one reason why they keep working is they're making a you know, bank in their 70s. Um, and they don't already have massive deferred uh, accounts, that could be a case where you would do this. Excellent, excellent, excellent description of that. So what a lot of people don't know, and we taught you before on the podcast on this, if you are eligible for the still working exception, you're over the age of 73 and you don't own 5% or more of the company on April 1st, the year following the year you turn 73, you will be allowed to delay RMDs for that employer's 401k. Mm-hmm. You can move your other accounts that are subject to RMDs into that 401k mm-hmm. and ba-boom, no RMDs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't take any money out, assuming the 401k allows it. You can still voluntarily take money out. But you don't have to be forced to. So it's a wonderful way to shut off or reduce RMDs. Let's say you have a 2 million IRA and you're thinking, God, if the RMD was only half that amount, I could live with it. Move half the IRA into the 401k. Boom, problem solved. However, you must first take your RMD. If you move from an IRA to the 401k, 
after reaching age 73, even if you do it as a direct trustee-to-trustee transfer. So there's another instance where you must take the RMD first. It gets confusing, and I misspoke three weeks ago, and Chris didn't catch it. So please, we know we misspoke. We fixed it. I'm trying to get you guys to understand the rules. I appreciate everyone pointing it out to me, and this is the last I'm going to mention it. So no more, please. Thank I think you. maybe I think maybe to if people want a real simple way, I believe simple to remember this. Just remember, in a year that you are owing an RMD, the RMD is due January 1st of that year. It's due. You have some time maybe to take it, but it's due. That combined with the rule that the first dollars out of an account are always considered the RMD, now you can see why there's this issue that crops up. It's oh, It's due and payable January 1st based on the December 31st value from a day before. Just because you might take until the end of that year to do it doesn't mean it wasn't due. It was due and calculated in a known amount on January 1st of that year. And always remember, the first dollars out must be RMD. Exactly. Or considered RMD would be the better way of saying it. Yep. Whether you want to designate it that is not, you are not allowed to designate it. The rule is the first dollars out are considered RMD in a year and RMD is due. That is what causes all this um, Consternation. Consternation, yes. Confusion. Misspeaking. Okay, anyways, I think we beat that horse to death. I think so, several times. Several times. And that's it. So it's good. I mean, this is one of those little nuances a lot of people don't know. Now you guys know it. Until the government makes some other stupid rule and blows this one up, and we have to explain all that over again. But hopefully they're done passing retirement laws until... I think they are. They, haven't, they still haven't given the final secure one um, interpretation, and they st- now are working on Secure 2. So IRS is going to be busy for several years trying to iron this mess out. Hopefully Congress is done passing laws until they can straighten out the, the mess they've gotten themselves into. Okay, let's get to annuities. Back to annuities. I got what appears at face value to be a very simple question. I'm going to turn it into an EDU show, and I'm going to use this question as an opportunity to reiterate to you how Chris and I view annuities and why we view them the way we do and where we feel they can fit into a person's retirement plan. We are not going to be talking about uh, time-specific annuities, MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities. It's not what I'm talking about here. MIGAs we use specifically as a, a positioning type of investment to time when we're going to need or when the client is anticipated to need spending in the future. When we were getting 6% for four years, I was attracted to that. Safe up to the claims paying ability of the insurance companies. We do have to acknowledge that you are um, under the the risk with any annuity that the insurance company will go under. And if it goes under, the state guarantee fund will provide a level of protection up to limits like FDIC. Unlike FDIC, 
who the federal government controls and often ignores their own rules and just bails out everybody in the bank like they've done with the several bank failures this year. The state guarantee fund, you're not going to find that type of flexibility. Most states will protect two hundred and fifty to $300,000 of money in a multi-year guaranteed annuity or remaining life expectancy payouts from a annuitized income annuity. So some people will open multiple lifetime payout annuities with multiple insurance companies to get as much protection as possible. We tend to favor if you are truly going to buy a lifetime guaranteed income stream annuity, single premium immediate annuity, which is the annuities that Chris and I like, and the ones that I'm going to be talking about in reference to this email, we tend to favor only the strongest rated insurance companies and stay away especially from private equity-owned Bermuda-based insurance companies. I wouldn't trust them for the rest of your life. So we tend to favor, and um, I I don't like saying names because we're not saying to go out and use them, but there are some very, very strong companies in the United States that are rated A++ Household names that you would recognize. The one that we have mentioned in the past regularly, New York Life. We are not saying to run out and use them, but it is a company we would feel comfortable with if a client wanted to buy a lifetime guaranteed stream of income. They also happen to be, I think, one of, if not the only remaining insurance company that will allow you to put an annual increase to your payments beyond 5%. And you've confirmed recently, Chris, they're still going to 10, right? I've seen a couple other companies going as high as six and a half now, too. So there's some that have creeped above five. <clears throat> I'm not aware of any. Could be out there. I'm not aware of any that offer inflation increases to their annuity payments higher than 10. Okay. And um, I, I hesitate to say inflation increases because they're not tied to CPI. Right. They are just a stated annual increase percentage in your payments. They essentially are designed to help you keep pace with inflation, but they're not tied directly to CPI. The last insurance company that offered that was the principal, and they stopped, I think, about four to six years ago now. And I was was heartbroken when they finally pulled out. Everyone used to offer those for years. Mm -hmm. Why did they get out of it, Chris? Turns out it's not as easy to hedge against inflation risk as they all thought. Exactly, because of that uncertainty. But as you're going to see here when we answer this email question, there's two periods of time that this woman is alluding to in her email. One period where we know where it ends and another period where we don't. One period where we wouldn't recommend she use an annuity and the other period we would. It was that uncertainty of the second period that I'm alluding to that we'll explain in a second, the uncertainty of when it's going to end is the reason we prefer an annuity. The case of CPI, insurance companies were saying, gosh, we don't know if we have to increase this 1%, 2%, or 12% in a year. It was, it was impossible for them to hedge, as Chris said. So it's easier when they have a stated amount. If New York Life is going to increase your payments 9% a year, It's not the size of the increase. It's the fact that it's a stated amount that makes it easy 
for New York Life, they know, okay, we're going to have to increase this 9% a year. They can hedge that because it's a known increase. It was the uncertainty of CPI that pulled insurance companies out. One of the biggest digs on the income annuities that Chris and I favor, single premium media annuities, and there are many, many digs, and we freely admit that, and I'm going to dedicate a show to Spears. And when I do, I'll point out the negatives and the positives. But one of the digs is, oh, your payments remain level. Yes, but they don't have to. They can increase. And if you know the rate of growth in the expenses that you are trying to cover with this lifetime stream of income, which is something that we have walked you all through in our process and approach, we attempt to try to determine what that rate of growth is. Well, just and to be careful, we don't know what that rate is. We have an assumed right, we assume, growth rate assume, to that. Correct. So we are dealing with an assumed rate of increase on those expenses. Chris is right. We're not fortune tellers or predictors. We we can project the future. We cannot predict the future. But if you know and feel fairly confident in what you think the rate of growth in the expenses you are trying to cover are, you can get an annual increase of payments to match that. doesn't have to be exact. If, you're gonna, if yours are averaging 4.8, you can get a 4% one or a 5% one. Or a six or a three. You carry some risk if you go with a number lower. The insurance company is carrying more risk if you choose a number higher. But that's where we use annuities. So when we answer this woman's question, or more likely just opine on it, we are not talking MIGAS. We're talking single premium immediate annuities. And her question begins, hi, Jim and Chris. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. I have learned a great deal since listening to your podcast With your annuity show, you often recommend that your minimum dignity floor should be covered by guaranteed income, and you list Social Security, pensions, or annuities. You have also said that you don't recommend buying an annuity until you need it, and then your preferred annuity is a single premium immediate annuity. To bridge the gap, between the guaranteed income you are receiving and your minimum dignity floor. I believe you suggest that while you are younger, you should set sufficient of funds aside to purchase such annuity when you are older, but don't buy it when you are younger. My question relates to someone that doesn't have any pension or any existing annuity, just Social Security. What would trigger a recommendation to purchase an annuity? I'm going to pause there because she then goes into her scenario, which is very important. But I want to make mention of a few things, and it might be some things running through your mind, Chris. So before Mm -hmm. I hop on this, this is the first Chris literally has heard this. I just told him I got an email. I'm going to run with it. Follow my lead. And is that not the prep I gave you? That's the full prep I got. (laughs) That is is the prep (laughs) I gave Chris. But anything jumping in your head that you want to chat about from that paragraph that I read? 
I think she's generally picking up on things that we talk about, which is um, anticipating the need for a, an income annuity at some point in life. And it isn't necessarily today when you're doing some sort of analysis. Um, and what we like to have is a explicit promise by the younger you to help protect the older you's minimum dignity floor at for, you know, as a as a minimum priority, right? There's other priorities too to talk about, but very minimum, you've got to promise the older you that you're going to protect their minimum dignity floor, which may involve ultimately more secure income. She mentioned she only has social security, no pension. She, if her social security isn't big enough to cover her minimum dignity floor, which can happen, but if it's not big enough for her, then maybe on her horizon is an annuity. And we say exactly what she said. We don't necessarily want the younger you to, to pre-purchase it too early. We want to let you uh, you know, experience life up to the point where it, it, you're clear it makes sense or you're convinced it makes sense to get the annuity. And the younger you at that point, you know, on day one, only has to reserve enough money so the older you can deploy that money into an income annuity if at the time they determine that still makes sense um, when you get to the point of, of, of the need. And, and the reason why there's a point in the future oftentimes is for many, many, many people, once their Social Security is fully on, it often initially covers their minimum dignity floor. That is very, very common, actually, whether you're single or a, a couple, that it is very common to see Social Security doing a pretty darn good job covering the minimum dignity floor at first. But because minimum dignity floor expenses tend to grow faster than Social Security grows, there's, again, as equally often, a, a point where your minimum dignity floor starts to exceed the Social Security. And it's at that point uh, we want you to plan for, plan for having money to generate more secure income when it is, in fact, needed down the road. Excellent. And I'm going to run with that a little bit more, and Chris is going to chime in, too, I am sure. Remember, in the office, Chris does most, if not all, of the retirement plan. Not alone. He has a team that works with him. Uh, I haven't done direct retirement planning to clients in two years, and uh, I probably won't in the future. So I'm going to talk from memory and from the person who designed and came up with what we call the security time and income process. But there's a lot in this paragraph that I want to get to. And if this show goes into two shows, so be it. It's not just answering her question. I want everyone listening to understand where we as a firm feel annuities can play a role. Other advisors may think other things. You as do-it-yourself Vanguardian VGs may be thinking, no way in heck am I ever going to use an annuity. Neither one is right. The advisors who use an annuity for everything and a Vanguard VG engineer-style person, do-it-yourselfer, who will never touch an annuity. They have their own reasons. Chris and I are simply going to share with you our rationale. And my rationale, why I came up with this years and years and years ago. So I can already see, because I went kind of long at the beginning, and I know Chris has to wrap up at four in recording. This is probably going to become a two-part EDU, because not only am I going to answer this woman's question, I also want to teach you listeners where we feel you should consider an annuity. So I could do a lot from that first paragraph. But before I do, I'm going to... Acknowledge and call out Chris and correct a Chrisism. 
I think he was trying to give me a shout out for growing up in New England, especially south of Boston, where I say use guys all the time. Because Chris used the plural you for the older you. He said the older yous. Now, I think he was just trying to be funny by pointing out, hey, Jim, that's probably the way you spoke. And yes, it is the way I used to speak. It was yous. Uh, Chris meant you, the older you, not the older yous. Uh, is that correct, Chris? You're just trying to be polite to me? No, I'm me pretty sure it was the lane? possessive yous. Possessive yous? Yeah. How can you have a possessive yous? You'll have <laughs> no, to go back I'm and sure listen to not. the tape. Oh, I will. But don't don't, but I, don't, no, don't no, rob I'm my serious. thunder. Don't, no, don't I'm rob serious. my thunder. It wasn't meant to be plural you. It was possessive you. The older yous minimum dignity floor. The, the minimum dating floor of the you, I'm sure oh. to a grammar person that's, you know, doesn't feel so I don't good. know now. I but. was all excited that I got a criticism. All right, folks, if he meant it that way, I stand corrected. <laughs> but, damn it. All right. It's all good. Never mind. I was all excited. I even wrote it down. I was waiting for you to shut up <laughs> so I could mention that. Wow. Well, because you usually stop me and say, well, before we go on, I want to clarify what Jim meant. <laughs> damn it. I thought you said use plural. All right. I'll go back but and listen. If you ever Maybe. walk around Boston, folks, honestly, you'll hear people saying use. Oh, use for guys. sure. As the plural, yeah, that's something I haven't really embraced. We we have there was one guy, George, the real name, uh, very good friend of mine growing up. He always was used, used guys. Come on, it just it was hilarious. Okay, back to her email. She begins. You often recommend that your minimum dignity floor should be covered by guaranteed income. Yes, we do. Let's kind of back this up. First of all, and this is going to apply to her answer later. Dignity should have been called lifestyle. When I read on to her next paragraph, you see where I'm going with this. It should have been called minimum lifestyle floor. Don't misunderstand what Chris and I mean by minimum dignity floor. It is not the smallest amount of money you need to live a dignified life. It's the smallest amount of money that you need to live the lifestyle you have been accustomed to. So I think if I called it minimum lifestyle for floor, MLF instead of MDF, people would understand that better. I call it dignity out of honor to the woman who is long since passed away, I'm sure, because she'd be pushing 108, 110 right now. I can't do the math in my head. You all know the story. She was 78 years old. She couldn't afford strawberries. I was a 32-year-old cop working off-duty. She was in a grocery store. Back then, I was very observant. You, you wouldn't believe it now because I can walk around and not see anything. But back then, I was observing everything. It's, it's what you did when you were in cop mode. I knew there was something wrong with that woman. I knew the way she was staring at the register. Something was wrong. I saw when her shoulders hunched down, something was wrong. And then I heard the clerk say she couldn't, uh, excuse me, I heard her say to the clerk she couldn't afford the last item in her order and to please remove it. The clerk removed the item, put the item down. And to this day, I have no idea why I did what I did. But if I didn't do this, I wouldn't be here today. I mean, I'd still be alive. I'd 
maybe be a chief of police somewhere, which at the time was my goal in life, was to be a chief of police somewhere. Chris would be still here at CSU, but probably working for a different firm without any idea of what we've created. But instead, I picked those strawberries up, handed them to the clerk and said I would buy them. And I gave her $2. I got change back. To this day, I don't remember what the strawberries cost. And then y'all know the rest of the story. She started thanking me and met me out in the parking lot and said to me very forcefully that she was 78 years old, lived on just Social Security, which as we explained last week, is a form of an annuity. Her next check didn't come for 10 days. And if I didn't buy her those strawberries, she would not have had strawberries for 10 days. And she loved strawberries. That is the essence. That story is why I am here. Because when she said that to me, I realized, I don't know, diddly squat about investing in retirement and finances. And I literally went to the store. You all know the story. I went to the store. I bought magazines. I bought Barron's, uh, Wall Street Journal, Mutual Fund magazines. I didn't even know what a mutual fund was, and that magazine doesn't even exist. Actually, most of the magazines I bought don't exist anymore. Money, didn't money go under two? I think money's gone, but Kiplinger's is still around. I know the Journal and Barron's are still around. To this day, I still read them. And I started learning. And when I started developing my thought process... In honor of that woman who could not have felt dignified when she got home that some total stranger had to buy a 78-year-old woman strawberries, that after 78 years of life, she couldn't afford a damn pint of strawberries. So I call the minimum dignity floor the minimum dignity floor in honor of her. But it's truly your minimum lifestyle floor. And it'll vary for everyone. But it covers five main categories. You all know this. If you're a longtime listener, repeat after me. Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. And I put them in that order because I thought I'm going to go smallest to highest. Food, and, and I based this off of a single dude. I know families pointed out to me that often... Utilities can be higher than food. I don't know. Oh, excuse me. Food is often higher than utilities. But when you're a single guy, food is less than utilities. Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. Five very broad categories that can cover hundreds of very unique and individualized expenses geared solely to maintaining your standard of living. We call that the minimum dignity floor. I wanted to explain that because she mentioned something in the next paragraph, which we probably won't get to until next week, which I wanted to explain now to her. It's really the minimum lifestyle floor, not the minimum amount of money you need to keep your head out of poverty. So far, so good, Chris? Yes. I think a good recap of where that came from. I also believe passionately, if you can't tell, in covering that, even for you listeners who love managing your own money and have millions, three million, four million, five million saved. This particular listener, as you see, when I add everything up, I think she has close to seven or eight million. 
yes, you probably are not going to outlive your assets. But that's not the reason I believe in covering the minimum dignity flow with lifetime secure income. It's not the only reason. For many of you listening, though, you don't have $8 million in assets. You might have 800000 of assets. And the likelihood or risk, not likelihood, bad choice of words, the risk that you might outlive your assets is far stronger than someone who has $8 million in assets. So for people who fall into those categories, which is the vast majority of people in this country, we concede that. Maybe not the vast majority of listeners to this podcast, but the vast majority of people in America do run a risk of outliving their assets. That's why the the 4% safe withdrawal rule, which Chris and I don't ascribe to, has, has become so popular because people fear running out of assets, so they're going to limit their spending. Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care are five groups of expenses that will continue forever, whether you have money or not. So in my simple mind, it should be covered with an income stream that will continue forever, whether you have money or not. So trying to manage your expenses through a safe withdrawal rate, to me, isn't too safe. Because if you get a bad timing or a bad hand in the card deck or whatever that saying is, you might run out of money. Not this person with $8 million, I'll concede that, but someone with 800000 or $1.2 million, or even $1.5 million. You do run a risk of outliving your assets if you live well into your 80s or 90s. And knowing that your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care are covered hopefully fully, but at least at a good degree, because you never know what the future is going to bring, with a stream of income that you can never outlive, goes a long way at making your retirement more sound. But what about the people who probably won't outlive their assets? They just got too much. Why do we still feel you should consider? We don't force you. If you're a client of ours, we're not going to force you. Because what happens to our brains, Chris, as we age? Well, like it or not, they're going to slow down. And the rate at which they slow down varies for people, but they do slow down. And creating a simple-to-follow kind of, I hate to say autopilot, because it can't really probably ever get that simple, but a simple-to-follow plan to handle your finances as possible for the older you is really, I think, a gift that the younger you can give to the older you is a plan that they can follow easily, even if there is significant mental decline. Exactly. It's for the simplicity and emotional protection. Retirement always gets the headline of sequence of return risk, what I used to call sequential risk till Chris explained to me it's sequence of return risk. Why I have to use all those words when sequential was a lot shorter beyond me, but I humor Chris and say sequence of return risk. That gets all the headline. 
And gee, you've got to position your portfolio correctly. You've got to watch out. Sequence of return risk for the first 10 years of retirement. Uh, we often say for the first half of retirement. I think 10 years came up because most retirements might last 20 to 30 years. Whatever the case may be, sequence of return risk at the beginning of retirement as opposed to the end of retirement can derail a portfolio based solely on a safe withdrawal rate and cause that portfolio to run out sooner than ever imagined. We're not disputing the significance of sequence of return risk. That gets all the attention in retirement. And that's where everyone puts their effort. We're trying to look at people who should also be paying attention to the emotional risk of retirement. The fact that, number one, spending your money is going to freak the heck out of you when you retire, especially you do it yourself for Vanguard VGs. You spent your entire life creating a portfolio. You're loath to watch it go down. You don't want to spend it. You're forgetting that it's deferred spending. It's going to freak you out. You're not going to want to do it, which boggles the mind, but we see it all the time. Knowing that you have a steady stream of income that is going to cover your minimum dignity floor should give you emotional support to know, number one, if my mental capacity begins to fail, and sadly it will, or worse, I pass away and my spouse is left and he or she is not very involved in the finances and I don't think could handle my laddered bond portfolio that I've created at treasurydirect.gov to cover our spending and, and these assets that I have invested here and all the stuff you guys do. You know the spouse, if you die first, may not be able to handle it or want to handle it. They might be brilliant in their career, but they're just not into this investing stuff. Telling them, honey, you're all set. If something happens to me, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care are being covered, not by this complex bond ladder that you're going to have to stop managing or worse, pay someone to manage for you. I got it all set with these annuities, and they're going to continue to pay long after I'm dead. And based on my projections, I think the income stream is going to be able to keep pace with inflation, but you may want to, to monitor that aspect at the very least. It's a lot easier, and as your mental capacities begin to fade, and at some point in time, you are not going to be into investing. I know you'll, you, you can't understand that now. And not everybody is going to be Munger. Is it Munger or Munger? I forget. Munger. Munger, mm -hmm. Munger and Berkshire. Uh, not Berkshire. Buffett. Not everyone is going to be Munger and Buffett, okay? You might fancy yourselves as being as smart as they are in their 90s, but not everyone is going to do that. They're the black swan. They're the anomaly. They're the definite tail end of the bell curve. At some point in time, you may not understand investing, or you just may not be interested in investing. What I've often said, and I truly believe this, folks, Retirement planning at its core is the younger you. And you may not feel young in your 60s. I'm going to be 60 in another six weeks. And I'm not freaking out over it because since last year, <laughs> what? I haven't been. No, I, I, I don't want to turn 60. 
But I've been calling myself 60 for the last year. When I turned 59, I was like, what a stupid number, 59. I just went to 60. And I've been telling people, it pisses Rachel off because I'll tell people I'm 60 and she corrects me. No, you're not, you're 59. And I have to point out to her, if I was buying life insurance, I turned 60 five and a half months ago, according to the insurance company. And I had to explain to her what I mean by that. I'm 60 for all intent and purposes, folks. I don't feel young. I'm sitting here recording with a $125 back brace on because I'm still trying to get rid of my back pain. I go home and I sit on a zero coupon, not a zero coupon. God, I got (laughs) investing on my mind. A zero gravity pillow set. These four different pillows I sit in and it reduces my, my back stress and pain. I'm old, folks. My body is showing it. My mind hasn't started going yet. Thank God. But my body is. I'm not naive on this. I know where this is going. At its core, retirement planning is the younger you. And even though I don't feel young, 60 is going to be young. When I'm 80, I'm going to affectionately look back and say, my God, I thought 60 was old. Because at 60, I look back. And when I turned 40, I freaked at 40. I was just freaking. I look back now at 40 and think, you idiot, you were not old. You were in your prime. You just didn't know it. At its core, retirement planning is the younger you, whether the younger you is 60, 65, 68, 67, 73, whatever age you decide to pull the string and retire, it is the younger you giving a promise to the older you. And that promise is, no matter what happens, we run out of money, you run out of mental faculties, you die before your spouse who doesn't quite understand this. No matter what happens, I promise I am doing everything possible to make sure your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses, those core groups of expenses that every human is going to need until the day they die is taken care of in a very simple to understand, simple to follow, simple to implement strategy. And in return, the older you is going to turn around And give you permission to spend money on fun. Because traditional retirement planning, especially from AUM guys who want all your money and are loathe for income annuities. And the cynic in me says, because that's dollars $500,000 or whatever it comes to that they can't manage and charge 1, 1. 1.2, 1.3, 1.5, 0.8, 0.7, whatever the hell it is they want to charge on it. They can't charge on those dollars if you go buy an income annuity. But limiting your spending early in life So you can have a probability-based statistic that the older you might have enough money to retire. And in between now and then, they can continue to receive an asset management fee. They hate 
this approach to tell you to put money in an income annuity. I don't. Number one, that's not the way we manage money. We charge you a flat fee and so be it. I don't care if I manage half a million dollars or $5 million. You're going to pay me the same amount of money. And it's for a convenience. You can do it yourself. I know that. If you don't want to do it, I'll do it. And here's how much I'm going to charge. So I don't have any skin in the game. I just look at this, though, from a retirement planner, someone who truly did engross himself in this and say food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care are important, even for people with money in case they die first and their spouse doesn't understand this or in case they go through cognitive decline. And there's another thing from Texas Tech, Chris, that's very important in this cognitive decline I want you to mention. Because I came up with this cognitive decline when I read the first ever and only, thank God, because it is written in a language that is just painful to read, but a study from Harvard University, an academic research paper on when a pers- the average human, not the bell curve tail ends, the average human in that bell curve, at what age does their mind start changing where their Cognitive abilities for financial matters begins to decline. It's right, right about 53. 53. <clears throat> when I read that report over a decade ago now, it's got to be 11, 12 years ago now, I think, it changed my approach. Yes, it had the cachet of Harvard, but it made sense what they were saying. Several years later, Texas Tech came out with another study. I'm going to let Chris talk about this one. And it further drove my belief in this whole income annuity to protect your minimum dignity floor beyond what your Social Security and pension, if you have one, are projected to do. What did Texas Tech find out, Greg? Well, my name's Chris, but the reason... The uh, scary part about the Texas Tech follow-up to that Harvard study is that um, they didn't, uh, you know, I I don't think they necessarily confirmed or denied the finding of Harvard so much as they revealed something a bit scarier, in my opinion. I think what Harvard showed was kind of common sense, just they put a number on it. They were able to identify an age statistically. Um, What Texas Tech came up and said was that despite that decline that starts for people at various uh, speeds, you know, uh, in sometime in their 50s, generally this decline, your confidence in making those decisions does not decline. So that means as your abilities to crunch these numbers in your head and understand and balance all of these things to consider when making financial decisions for yourself or others, you remain confident that you have not lost the ability to do so. And this is what these two studies together, in my opinion, explain why so many people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s um, are victims of financial fraud because they don't, they, they overestimate their ability to protect themselves and understand what's going on with regard to their finances. And that just makes them a target. So uh, that's the, you know, I, and I truly think it's scary that, that the information that came out of the Texas Tech study, that the uh, 
confidence doesn't go down. down. It, if, it, if they went down together, then as you decline, you'd recognize it. You would maybe then be resistant to making certain impactful decisions without consulting with someone else or running it by your, your, your kids or your spouse or you know someone before you made certain decisions. But that uh, apparently is not the case. Exactly. And it's not a cliff. Let me make that perfectly clear because yeah. I'm about to turn 60. So according to – it's not that, gee, Jim's dumb now. He's over 53. It's just Harvard saying their studies and, – and I forget how they did it, but they did brain scans. They gave people of various ages uh, questions, and they just came to the conclusion that at about age 53, the part of our brain that analyzes or is, is involved in financial concepts begins to degrade. It's at different speeds for different people. Clearly, Munger and oh God, I can never remember his name. I remember the, the one that nobody knows. Uh, Buffett. Munger and Buffett. Yes, clearly in their brains, it's I, I guarantee you those two are not as bright as they were at 52. I guarantee you that. They're both, one's 99. I don't know how old the other one is. He's in his 90s. They're still smart by that standard compared to most 90-year-olds, but I bet you they're nothing compared to what they were in their early 50s and probably 60s and 70s. But they're the exception, not the rule. Retirement planning, folks, and we're going to wrap up now, and I'm going to continue this next week. I'm trying to teach you not only about annuities, and we'll do that with the Q&A show, the EDU shows. I'm trying to teach you why and where to consider them. And we're going to use this email as our template. So for the one who sent this in, don't sit there bumming. Oh, my God, he didn't answer the damn question. I'm getting to it. Give me time. You know me. I'm slow. But just remember, folks, a promise for permission. That's what retirement planning is all about. And in order to give the promise to the older you for the permission to spend on fun, you have to start to do a lot of calculations. And one of the things you have to determine is the shortage in your minimum dignity floor and make a decision for yourself if you want to cover it with an annuity or not. The good part is, and this will lay into the next week's show as we continue for this listener, to the listener who sent it, it's a Georgette, uh, ma'am, you don't have to worry about buying the annuity right away. You can get one at any time. There's no underwriting. And the longer you wait, what happens, Chris? Dollar for dollar. Dollar for dollar, the more you get on a monthly or yearly basis. Exactly. You buy an annuity at 80 instead of 75, dollar for dollar, you're going to get more money for the money you put in. Why? Simple. You're five years closer to death. So there's no rush. It's not like you're trying to buy long-term care insurance or life insurance And at any time, you could be uninsurable, which I am for both, because you all know why my health issues and all that. So that boat has sailed for me, but not for an annuity. If anything, I could actually go for an underwritten annuity where I say to someone, hey, I might die sooner. Nothing to be proud of and happy about, but there's actually one or two insurance companies that will allow you to uh, go and demand more or request more. And they'll send you to underwriting, not to see if you're healthy, to confirm, yeah, yeah, you're on death's door. (laughs) We will give you more money. Um, But those annuities do exist. But um, it's it's, very few companies do. I think there's only two that do offer that type of unique underwriting. Uh, Medically underwritten single premium media annuity is what they call them. So 
in the next show, we're going to continue with this. But hopefully you're starting to understand why we consider them, where we consider them. We're going to continue with this. Again, the concept of minimum dignity floor, secure income. And we'll pick up right there with where we left off, secure income. Okay. That sounds good. Well, um, not often do we have an email that stretches into multiple shows, but this one's uh, tying right in beautifully to kind of a combination of a reminder to every one of our process and approach, but also how annuities, as you know, appropriate for the annuity of Awareness Month. I don't know why I want to keep calling it Annuity Appreciation Month, but uh, Annuity Awareness Month that we're in uh, kind of all wraps up together in this topic. So thanks a lot for listening, and uh, we'll be back with you next week with a continuation of this email and story. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.